From the Cumberland Plateau and the University of the South, this is the Suwannee Review Podcast. My guest today is Sadiq Fafana. Sadiq received an MFA in creative writing from NYU and teaches high school in Brooklyn. He is a 2018 Center for Fiction Emerging Writer Fellow. His collection, Stories from Our Tenants Downstairs, is forthcoming from Scribner. The Suwannee Review has been honored to publish three stories from that upcoming collection, and we are especially honored to have him as one of our first editors at large. Sadiq, it's my great honor to have you here. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me, Adam. Really kind words. Thank you. I was actually hoping, Sadiq, that you and I might recreate some magic that I would share with our listeners. Mm -hmm. And I was just hoping you could reread the opening of the Okie Doke. All right, cool. The Okie Doke. My nigga Boons came home on the 4th. I ain't seen the nigga in four years. So when I heard he was out, I'm like, I'm going to scoop the nigga the first thing this evening and welcome him back to the free world. A lot of shit done changed since he was locked up. We got ourselves a motherfucking black president for one. I slide through his baby mom's crib on East 116th. Buzzer broke, so I got to shout out the window and shit. Elevator broke, so I got to walk up creaky stairs, too. It don't matter. They doing it big up there. Mayella had the welcome home sign over the radiator. Wine coolers iced up in the trash can. I come in and see my nigga all tatted and brolic, veins up and down his neck. I'm like, yo, that's my nigga. Made good use of the time. He turned around and gave me a look like, is that my nigga Swan? Big daps, big hugs. Son, he said, you grew like two inches. He's 6'1 and my ass 5'6 on a good day. I'm like, ha, you got jokes. Truth be told, streets was empty without boons. Whole time I'm thinking, fuck all this song and tears bullshit. I can't wait to get my nigga out and reintroduce him to the world. The glitz and glam. Make sure he back in style. Let him know what it's like now that we got a G in the White House. Once everybody leave, I finally get boons alone. His baby mom's in the living room braiding some kid hair. She do that for a hustle. I find Boone's in a little back room holding up his old North face at the sleeve, staring at it like it's one of God's great gifts and shit. When the moment Raya asked him about tonight's plan, yo, my nigga, what we doing to celebrate? Anything you want. You want to grab a steak? Midnight ball? Piff? I close the door so Mayella don't hear. Pussy? This nigga smile, put his hand on his chin like he thinking. What this nigga say? Chinese food. The hell we gave these motherfuckers in the day. This one time we show up at good taste late night and just start banging on that window in front of the counter, guilt tripping them like, is this bulletproof glass here? Is this bulletproof glass? Knocking shit off. Poor old Chinaman behind the window wagging his finger saying, no, no, not like that. His wife come out, wipe her hands on her apron, all nervous and hug him. And we just hyping it up. Is you saying we niggas that's going to rob you? Huh? You understand English? Speak. And he looking all helpless. 
Like all he want to do is sell General Tso's chicken and egg rolls to happy customers in the hood and make his $5 a pop. Like the last thing he want to do is offend niggas like us. Me and Boone say, matter of fact, give me all your egg rolls. All your egg rolls is on the house tonight. And we ain't scared because even if someone dialed a popo, they ain't coming to Harlem no time soon. But still the China man do it. He called a 5-0 and we out. Soon as we get to the park on morning side, we start dying. Boone said, you seen that nigga's face? Like that nigga seen a ghost. It looked like that nigga wanted to go back to Shanghai. Now, though, I'm thinking about the Chinaman and his wife hugging him. Well, he must think about niggas now. He probably got a shotgun in the back like I wish a nigga would. Boone's go. I was fiending for them good taste wings when I was in the bing. I'm telling you, son, we need to hit them fools up. He trying to make a scene over there, I know. So I'm like, let's swing by my crib, call Miller and them, tell them you home and shit, then bust your ass and call a duty. Thank you so much for that, Sadiq. Mm-hmm. That was incredible. And <laughs> I'm so glad to hear you read that because the brief story I wanted to tell was when you read at Convocation Hall back in 2017 and you read the Okie Doke, you and I had been working on that story for many months. And in my mind, its tone, the sound of Swan's voice was very much like the, the voice you just read it in. It was, it was almost upbeat and electric. Mm. It was supercharged. But the night that you read your tone was really somber and it was in a register that I hadn't recognized in spite of the fact that we'd worked on the story. So carefully, I went over to a friend of mine, a Sewanee soon to be graduate named Will. And I grabbed him by the shoulder and I said, "Um, remember this night because you're going to remember the night you heard this. For me, it was one of the most remarkable reading experiences I've ever had. Um, your voice is really like no other. I was also thinking, and I wanted you to share this with your readers. You and I never would have met if it weren't for one person, and that's Lori Moore. Mm-hmm. And I was wondering if you could talk about the impact of Lori Moore on your life as a teacher and an artist. She was my workshop teacher, workshop professor at, at NYU. And the year before... When I was just choosing courses at NYU. This is in the MFA program. Yeah, the M- MFA program. You know, I was choosing courses. I didn't get my first choice. <laughs> I didn't get my second choice. <laughs> I did, you know, I got my last choice. And then, and, you know, one of the things that they said at NYU was, you know, signing up for workshops, you usually get your first or second choice. And so... I emailed them and I was just like, oh, yeah, I didn't get my first. I didn't get my second. I didn't, you know, I didn't get my third. I got my last choice. And they were like, oh, yeah, don't don't worry about that. You know, if you just hold on to this choice, we're trying to get Lori Moore to come next year. And, you know, we'll sign you up and you'll be one of the first people. And I was like, sure, sure. It worked out because my last choice ended up being a very magnificent professor who was just like ended up you know being my thesis advisor and like if I had done it again would have been my first or second choice so it worked out with that but I'm not just saying that diplomatically um that was just like 
it worked out. And then the spring of my last year, Lori Moore comes for just one semester. And I have referred to her as a guardian angel because I was in despair, you know, and it was kind of at that point, I was kind of just going through the motions. And I was like, you know what, I'm not going to quit writing. My soul quit. But I was like, I'm just going to continue and just finish, finish out the MFA and whatnot. But I, I very much went into her workshop, not feeling like a writer and just feeling like, you right, you know, I'm not going to quit things. I'm just going to get this degree done. Wait, stop for a second. Tell me this. I mean, like, why at that point had your soul quit, as it were? What what was it that it like? What what was it that it plunged you into some despair? Because there you are in an MFA, and you're. I mean, I think one of the lovely illusions about an MFA is it gives a kind of chronology to a process, which you and I both know Mm -hmm, is mm -hmm. extraordinarily slow. Why had your soul quit? And MFA, it's a great experience. I'm not going to discourage it. You know, and I, I do recommend it. People who are thinking of an MFA, I do recommend it. But there's a lot of psychological things going on there in that, you know, you get accepted to an MFA program and that's a form of validation. And that's a form of someone telling you like, okay, you're doing something here, doing something promising. And then you get to an MFA and people are encouraging, you know, and there are other writers and they're encouraging and they're nice and you form lifelong relationships. But then there is like, I'd be lying and we'd all be lying if we didn't say that there's not like a hint of like competitiveness. 100%. It's a contest and it's, it's a contest in a very small arena. Yeah. Yeah. And a workshop. And it's like the very definition of a workshop is like, you have to give constructive criticism you you know yeah and i'm not gonna say that like my stuff didn't merit like everything that people said during workshop was true you know and when you talk about character development and where a plot is going a lot of things that people said was true but at the same time it, it just kind of like makes you doubt yourself you're just like oh am i a writer like you know i go into i have two workshops a semester And every time I go into a workshop, there's more work that needs to be done. And there's not, you know, I've never gone into a workshop that says like, oh, this whole, this story is complete. And so, you know, as tough of skin as we have as writers and as much as we plunge forward, that's the despair I'm talking about, you know, and at a certain point, you're just like, am I a writer? And so that's where I was going. I'll say, I I just want to say, I think it's super important having gone to MFA school myself, having, mm-hmm. I was in the Hollins program in my early twenties and then went to Wash U between your peers and the sheer force of intellect and accomplishment of your, of your instructors, you almost have to leave MFA school and then learn how to become a writer. Yeah. All over again. Yes. But yes. anyway, so there you are, you're in despair, you're low and in walks queen Lori Moore. Yeah. And the funny thing is, like, she's definitely queen more, but she, she doesn't carry herself like she's the sweetest person. Yeah. And she comes into this workshop and, like, 
we have like tons of questions for her. And I remember when she walked in the first day, you know how everyone's chatting before class and whatnot. And I had never seen her live in person. And like literally she walks in and everybody just goes quiet. Like nobody can say a thing. Like everybody's just choked up. So to come in like that and then we have a bunch of questions for her and all of a sudden it's like, no, she has questions for us. And she's like, I'm going to get to know everyone. And she's asked us like, what book would we bring on a desert island and what piece of music um, and whatnot. And I remember asking her, I, I shared, I was like, you know, you ask for music, I'd bring Nas as Illmatic. And I was like, can we ask you about your MFA experience? And I said, what was it like? Did you feel like at any point did people like misunderstand your work? And she just gave me this like motherly look like, and she was just like, yes, that happened. And it still does. <laughs> and I was like, what? <laughs> She's like, it still does. She's like, that never, it never goes away. And like, just from that, I was just like, wow, wow. But a key moment in workshop was workshopping the okie doke. It was the okie doke. Yeah, it was the okie doke. It was the very first story I ever workshopped. And people said some really good things. They said like really good suggestions. They said like, we need to see the character more. And this is the, for people who haven't yet read stories from our tenants downstairs. This is one of the main characters in this interlinked uh, series of stories. And his name is Swan. He's married to another character who appears in the Ren Manual named Mimi. Yeah. Yeah. And and she's like, yeah, we need to see, you know, people are like, we need to see Swan more. And they had some good things to say about development. And while everybody's saying stuff, you know, and it's. it's she whips out her wand. <laughs> yeah. And she basically goes, she like whispers over to me, like in a very like performative <laughs> way. Like I'm just talking to you. And she's like, don't listen to them. Yeah. <laughs> 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 And I was like, wow. And, you know, and it wasn't she was saying that, like, they didn't have constructive things to say, but she was more like saying, like, the rawness, the potential of this. Don't let the, like, minutia of form and structure kind of, like, get you confused. And so it was very encouraging. It was very encouraging. And she just never let up. She never let up. As a student, you're kind of mindful of people in power with Lori Moore and then with you as an editor, like there are definitely times where I'm like, all right, you know, if Adam decides not to email me again, you know, that's fine. You know, I'm not going to hound him, you know, like, not gonna <laughs> and like same thing with Lori Moore. Like if Lori Moore doesn't say anything else about my writing or anything, like I'm not going to hound her because she has a million things to do. And she would just never stop. You know, the second story, she like emailed me after class and she said, the potential in this is great. And just off the glowing words, I was great. I was I was like, I'm done. Lori Morris says I could do this. I can always fall back on that. So you immediately felt your soul resurrected, as it were. Yeah, yeah. And confirmation. Yeah. Isn't it interesting that it's it's counterintuitive, right? I mean, there you are in a workshop, and it sounds to me like part of what your cautionary tale for listeners is, is it can be the overworkshop. Yeah, or yeah. the overworked shop. And there is someone who, in my opinion, is one of the five most important living writers in America. Yeah. I'll take that to the mat, mm-hmm. who is basically saying, don't do anything, right? Oh. On a certain level. 
Yeah. And it's powerful. It breathes. It lives. Yeah. And whatever comes of this, like I'll always remember that and like the power of just telling another writer, you're doing the right thing. Trust your instincts. That does a lot. And then on top of that, she said at the end of the workshop, she had like, um, you know, because you just print one copy of your story and then professor gives it back to you. And so at the end of the workshop, she's like, those two stories, can you like give me a printed copy? And I was like, all right. And again, I'm just like, whatever. And she emails me and she's like, yeah, I sent it to Deborah Treesmith, New Yorker. And Deborah Treesmith wrote a, like a nice note for me. Um, you know, she's like, I'm not, not going to take it, but she wrote a very, very kind note. She said, feel free to email me. And, you know, in addition to calling her a guardian angel, another one of my nicknames in my head for her is like the de facto agent. She was like, she acted. She was she was a de facto yeah, yeah, agent. Yeah, yeah. She like, and here's again, Queen Moore acting as like a de facto agent for me. I should tell my part of the story really quickly, which yeah. is that Lori and I became good friends when she started at Vanderbilt University. We lived relatively close to each other. We saw each other a great deal, have coffee or drinks or whatever. We just became really fast friends. And the review job came down, which I got in 2016. Mm-hmm. And so I'm in preparation for months for the the first issue. And I am, of course, talking to all the writers I know about people they see as emergent. This in addition to the people that I see as emergent and want to publish over the course of the first volume. And Lori says to me, I have a young writer who is the most talented student I have ever had as a teacher. Wow. Wow. And, um, you have to read him. And I have really, I have been showing his work everywhere and I have been struggling to get him published. And I have to say that when the okie doke landed on my desk and also camaraderie, and I believe the rent manual, I got a triad of stories, a triptych. I couldn't, I couldn't believe it. Mm. I had, I had one of those, you know, suspiciously look over your shoulder moments, which was kind of like, how has someone not picked up on this? Because it was the experience of encountering something that was just so decidedly original. In that way, you know, we're talking about guardian angel, which, you know, lends a sort of, uh, you know, the kind of magic to this story. There's really, to me, another element of magic to the story, which I'd really love you to talk about as well, which is decidedly unusual in publishing, which is the involvement and the approach your agent, Ethan Bassoff, took to your work. I was wondering if you could talk about Ethan's role in the shepherding of your work because he did some things which I consider very unusual for an agent. Yeah. Ethan is definitely one of the three. You know, when I point to the three, you know, for aspiring writers out there, like it takes people to be in your corner and it's Laurie Moore, it's Adam Ross, it's Ethan Bassoff. And he took me off a two stories. He took me off of the, the young entrepreneur's story and he took me off of the, the okie doke. And usually- Share the full title of that's the, the young the, entrepreneurs. The young entrepreneurs of Miss Bristol's Front Porch. That was published in Granta, correct? Yes. Okay. Yes. Lucky Granta. I love, I, love <laughs> I love that story. 
So he took me off of two stories, not, not a manuscript. It's really important to share, I think, with listeners, yeah. to my point, how far in advance this was. Because here's what, mm-hmm. here's what I'm trying to share, mm-hmm. is that I think another one of the, the things about MFA school and, and just people looking from the outside of publishing in is I think people take for granted how much of a relationship business it is and also how much of an ecosystem it is. Mm -hmm. And to that effect, I am not speaking here of, oh, it's who you know. Mm -hmm. It's actually not that. It's the willingness of people in a community, in an ecosystem to be on the lookout for originality. And then in the most, I think, authentic way, share it. I like to say, generally speaking, agents are selling animals. Like agents, agents pick things that they feel like they can sell. Yeah, that, that yeah. that's important. But in Ethan's case, he he was more than that. Right, right. And so I'm 38 now, and so I would say it was like early 30s. So maybe like 2014. And again, you're right. It's it's about like having something that's close to being in the form of it could it could sell, and then just kind of funneling it to the next level. And every agent says, or almost every agent says, like, I work with my writers, I'm an editor. And people say that, but in practice, it doesn't always happen. You know, just like a lot of publishing houses say, like, we're the boutique publishing house. And it's like, if everybody says that, then so, you know, most people are not telling the truth, right? Before our signing, he was like, yeah, I have an, I had another author and he submitted like 20 to 30 pages of his novel and we worked on it together. And in my head, I was thinking like, oh, yeah, it sounds nice. Really, do you have the patience for that? But that's what happened. Two stories. And a lot of times he was like a cheerleader. And I say that in like a most respectful, praiseworthy way in that before an agent, like most of our meetings were just like... Oh, here's what I like. And we'd talk about other books and he'd always have free books for me. And, uh, you know, a lot of times I looked forward to the meeting with him for like, not because it'd be like, oh, it's ready to publish or we're ready to send this out. It was more like we get to talk about books and he'll give me some free books. And, you know, so we had we had those conversations. And the first time he wrote me like a real long letter about what needed to be done in each story, how the whole collection should work as a as a whole which was very generous. I would love to hear what you found instructive or informative Mm. from that early input, but also um, how it became something to triangulate against. In other words, in my conversations with Ethan, I've always been really impressed with his, his feel for line and literary structure. But what did you really feel like you were taking away from that process? Because again, to reiterate, the Swanee Review didn't publish Sadiq's work until 2017. So he's getting taken on by Bassoff mm-hmm. in 2014. So three solid years, really before you're publishing mm-hmm. significantly. During that time, what's he, what's he, what, what did you feel like he was concretely mm-hmm. giving you? Mm-hmm. He was very blunt. He was nurturing and very blunt at the same time. And one of the things I remember reading that was a gut punch was he basically, in a very kind way, said that. The young entrepreneurs and Okie Doke were like the only really good stories. <laughs> it's just like everything else. I can't really see the characters. I can't really see what they don't have any dreams. They need hopes. They need, you know, they need stuff like that. So that was like a gut punch. But I also appreciated the honesty of that. 
And I felt like that he was right. And another thing that he said, which was, again, this collection wouldn't be what it was if he hadn't said this. And that is, he said, I think these characters should be linked. He's like, I think you're talking about the same place. Because a lot of these characters like are similar and whatnot, but you know, they're two different people, but they are similar. And I was like, if I really were thinking about it, I was like, yeah, you're right. You know, like sometimes I'll have a, I think of a certain type of person and they would be that certain type of person in different stories and they'd have different names. And I was just like, you know what? Let me try that. And we were talking about the character Swan and Okie Doke and another character Mimi in the rent manual who's like trying to make rent. And they were just so close to each other to begin with that I was like, all right, they should be a couple. And so that was a helpful note. And he said, like, you should, you should link this. And I tried to. So that was generative. That suddenly just exploded your thinking about how you were going yeah. to. Because it's, it, you know, it's, it, it's always to me, it's hard to imagine going into the process of writing a collection, yeah. thinking at the outset, yeah. I'm going to write an interconnected yeah, yeah. series of stories because that's just enormously challenging. Our podcast is recorded in the William Ralston Listening Room, located inside DuPont Library at the University of the South in Sewanee, Tennessee. This room is equipped with state-of-the-art audio components and over 30,000 recordings. Classes, listening sessions, and opera screenings are hosted by student curators throughout the school year. To visit or find out more about the Ralston Room, visit their website at library.sewanee.edu backslash Ralston. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit, and maybe to the end of being encouraging, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about slow writing versus fast writing. I know that Sadiq Fofana can write fast because the notes from the interregnum piece you wrote for us was, you know, comparatively written at speed. Although I will, I will just quickly tell the listeners, it's kind of funny because for those of you who read Sadiq's notes for the interregnum piece in the Swanee Review this past year. It's an incredibly moving and 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 piercingly honest piece, basically about Black disaffection with politics and Black disaffection with voting. But the first piece Sadiq turned in for me was not just Sadiq, Sadiq's heart wasn't mm-hmm. in it. And you took the criticism and you came back with something just stratospheric. But here you are, you're, you're in a period of composition that has taken years and years. You're capable of fast writing. What are the virtues and frustrations about slow mm. writing? I think sometimes I have it in my heart to write something fast and it just ends up just not, not being fast at all. I mean, I think it's more like now where I'm just kind of embraced like, oh, I'm, I'm going to take my time and there's virtue in taking your time. But I feel like throughout my 20s and a lot of my 30s, I was just like, you know, I'm going to do a Jay-Z one take and try to get this in one take. And I think my thing is listening to others, which again, can be a virtue 
and sometimes it's not a virtue for me, but like I'm I'm the type where I just kind of need other people to be like blunt and like I tend to believe other people before being like, oh, you know what, what they're saying is not really, it doesn't really apply. So for example, a story like the rent manual, I originally wrote that story as a first person story. And I wanted to write a story about somebody who, who makes rent, has 30 days or however many days and they make rent and whatnot. But for some reason, the, f- the first person just wasn't working. And so I just had to just kind of rethink it. And I remember reading online and this is what I do in despair. Like I read authors and like every author who's ever done an interview and like has been painfully honest about their process and the difficulties, it does such a help. Cause I remember reading something Danielle Evans said, who, you know, she said, when you're revising, it's almost like a reimagining. And uh, up until that point, I never thought of revising as that. For me, if something is not working, I like start from scratch. And that is what takes the majority of the time. But you need to talk here about that incredible formulation you had. You said you sort of, you learned this in a way from Laurie Moore again. The second person. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Second 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 person imperative. Talk about that. Yeah. So like a second person, like a lot of second person stories are like, you're walking down the street. You see a bird perched on the sidewalk. You decide to feed and you know, there's and there's lots of compelling stories that are like that. Okay, there's but, some, but keep going. Yeah, some, some, you know. Generally speaking, the second person, <laughs> it's like, okay, if you can pole vault 19 feet, you can do the second person for me. Because, because I hate when people yeah. are like, you do this, you do that. And I'm like, no, I don't. Yeah, yeah. But anyway, continue. Yeah, yes. but what makes Lori Moore's work very interesting is that it's second person, but it's like a command. It's like a... And like, and we again, like second person imperative, like walk into the store, grab this. And like, for some reason, like, it's just, I don't know, it holds it. It's a little bit more immediate. And so I literally just stole that technique. I was just like, this is my professor. I love her work. I want to learn from her. And I'm going to try to go do my story to go from first person to like second person imperative. And so it's like a rent manual. Like, this is how you make rent for the month. First, you do this, da, 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 do that. And so, yes, from her, the second person imperative, that's what I took. And that took me a whole two years to do. And a lot of times it's the realization. Like when I realized first person wasn't working, it took me a year or so to just even like admit it. And I compare it to like remodeling your basement. And like, you know, if someone says like clean your basement, your first instinct might be like, all right, I'm going to sweep. I'm going to put the furniture in order and whatnot. Then you might come to a realization. You might be like, you know what? The paint's chipping. You know what? I just think somebody's going to have to just come in, just redo the floors and everything. And then just coming to that realization takes a long time and admitting that it's a lot of work to be done and that like, yes, that's the work. And yes, I'm going to, I'm going to have to do it sometimes without even doing a word, just coming to the realization of that is is tough. Why don't you set up for us basically Mm -hmm. what the rent manual is about Mm -hmm. and then I'll have you read something because it really speaks to it speaks to a theme in your work that I wanted mm-hmm. to talk about. Mm-hmm. So the rent manual is about a woman named Michelle Sutton and she goes by Mimi 
there's one particular month where she's she's behind and she has 10 days to come up with a certain amount of money so that she can make rent. And the whole story is about the different things that she tries that are successful and some uh, most not successful ways to try to try to make rent. Can you believe that? Shima gonna say you can get anything if your heart is cold enough. She gonna explain the rest to you. Scoop up everything like you a baby chick gobbling up his mama's worms. After going back and forth with yourself, decides you gonna really do it. You ain't got a choice either how. How else you gonna hold on to $110 before the sun go down? Take the crosstown bus with fortune to the fairway by the college. Don't go to the market up the street from Banneker because the nosy birds will see you and start chirping. Go through the sliding door and open your mouth at the Museum of Food in front of you. All the fruits on white ice, prices written in fancy chalk. The floor swept up and the air conditioner blowing. The stock boys with their clean red aprons and combed hair. The ceiling speakers playing that girl who won all them Grammys. Read the labels on everything. Coriander, Giardelli chocolate, sparkling water, fennel, dill, mint, California rolls, garbanzo beans, organic strawberries, all the shit that make white people live forever. (laughs) Slap Fortune's hand when he tried to put the ice in his mouth. Your mama brought you to a place like this when you was a kid. D'Agostino's was the name of it. It was a few days after she got fired from the nursing home. She dragged your ass down there, said, Mimi, today we're going to be right up there with the Joneses. You was bumbling about in that store, watching your mama put pork chops in that cart and tangerine drink mix and pineapple Fanta and sloppy Joe in a can and hot dogs that look like fat thumbs and seeing her cart was different from everybody else's. You remember the white girl cashier ringing it all up and your mama giving her her EBT card and the white girl cashier being like, I'm so sorry, we don't take those. And your mama, who normally get a joy out of cussing folks to their face in front of other folks, started blushing like the sun was only beaming on her forehead. You remember how kind all the employees was who helped her put the food back and held the exit door open for y'all. Your mama said nothing to you the whole bus ride, just kept humming to herself. After you do this diaper thing for Shima and get your rent paid this month and stop wasting your money on frivolous things, you're going to be getting your groceries and places like this all the time. It's going to be when you and Swan and Fortune living in Westchester under the same roof or even before that, when y'all are the last one standing at Banneker in a sea of whiteies. Swan going to be stubborn at first, of course. He going to turn to you under the chandelier and be like, what the fuck is this nasty soda water you serving in these lettuce dishes with no meat? But after you done made him a few plates with the long French bread and olive oil, he won't be drinking nothing but Perrier to go with it. I want to say two things mm-hmm. about this, because I had a couple of realizations while I was rereading your work. This is true of the okie doke. This is mm-hmm. true of the rent manual. This is true of Mrs. Battles. Mm-hmm. In some ways it's true of camaraderie. Mm-hmm. 
in every single one of your stories, you put a clock on the field. In every single one of your stories, you put a clock on the field. What do I mean by that? Mm-hmm. In the okie doke, the question running through the reader's mind constantly is, is Swan going to go through with mm-hmm. this? Is he going to participate in this robbery? Is he going to change? Because he he's bought into Obama's hopey change thing, as mm-hmm. Sarah Palin mm-hmm. loved to say. Mm-hmm. In the rent manual, the payment coming due for Mimi is the clock that's on the field. Except, of course, all of Mimi's hustles to try to get the rent paid are in almost like a zero-sum game economy. It's the Banneker Homes people essentially feeding on the Banneker Homes Mm, people. mm, mm. In Mrs. Battles, the story about a para who's got this sort of horrible new kind of Teach for America Harvard Mm. grad coming in and telling her how this is all going to sort of work. It's the the potential of the school closing. So what I wanted to ask you is, are you aware of this theme of time running out in your stories and how self-consciously are you playing with that? Wow. That was very on point of you to, to, to pick that up. It's both. I think the conscious thing is like, you know, I think you hinted at that as the major dramatic question, like, you know, the question of the reader should ask and time it's funny that it just comes as as time and that's interesting i think you're absolutely right about that are there other stories in in the collection that you feel like where time is pressing on the characters i think those were the main ones those are the main ones there might be some element of like i think in light feet there's an element of like oh absolutely there the boys are dancing on the train and you know something tragic happens there's kind of like little pressure points Going And I think it just kind of points to the idea of the major dramatic question. And I kind of do it from a, a point of insecurity in that I'm like, this is an apprenticeship of writing and I don't know how to do this. And so, you know, I have to l- kind of lean on these things to generate some reader interest. One of those things is just given a finite space of time. And in Miss Battles, it's a year, you know, a school year. And so, like, no matter what, no matter how much I mess this up, there is still going to be like a year. You know, it's going to happen in the year. And that kind of gives it a beginning, middle end to it. And you know that you want to hopefully the reader wants to, to know, like, well, will the school survive? I'm a public school teacher. For me, what, what's been rewarding about high school is that the texts that you you read in high school are texts, you know, from the time I was in high school to, you know, now with my own high school students, texts haven't changed much, you know, like every now and then there'll be something inserted into the canon. But for the most part, the texts just kind of remain the same. It's so true. Yeah. And there's so much out there that's so much more relevant. It's so true. Yeah. So like, what are you teaching? It's To Kill a Mockingbird, still of Mice and Men, Night by Ellie Wiesel. And we talk about, when we talk about visceral reaction, like that one gets a visceral reaction all the time. You know, the students know about the Holocaust, but something about reading Ellie Wiesel's account, they just ask the most innocent questions. Then you just stop and you think like, whoa, like literature can, can do that. And I often think about like, all right, why is it that these texts, they haven't changed? Like, what is it about 
the power of these texts that give them staying power. And, you know, I can point to two things. And one, it's the social significance, like what they tell about a specific point in history, that significance. And then also back to the, the idea of like the major dramatic question, like stories that are just that we teach in high school that are stories just stories like and they have like nothing to really do about social movements or history they stay they have staying power because they have a clear major dramatic question they're clear characters and they're clear wants i'm thinking of a story which is just a it's amazing story thank you ma'am by langston hughes will always be the because I want 100%. Yeah. A boy is trying to rob a woman and fails to do it, falls to the floor. And the woman, instead of like calling the cops or instead of like, I don't know, whatever, she invites the boy to the home and she's just like, why'd you do this? And makes a meal and just the fact that the boy has a clear want, wants to rob, that immediately, immediately in terms of visceral response, students immediately like can latch on and just understand what's going on. And then just the like flip of like, is he going to get away with it or what's going to happen now that he's caught? Those major dramatic questions give that story the staying power and i would like that's i think about that a lot i really do well let me end Mm -hmm. sadiq by saying Mm -hmm. i feel the exact same way Mm -hmm. about your work there is what all great literature has which is that combination of simplicity visceral straightforwardness Mm -hmm. carrying on its wake extraordinary complexity I echo what Laurie Moore says. It's an amazing thing to come into the presence of such a talent. And I cannot wait until the world gets to read these stories. I appreciate it. Thank you for inviting me. And I appreciate the the journey we've we've had with working on these stories and your editorial feedback. A lot of times what people ask me in other interviews is like, what's Adam's editorial approach? How did he help you and whatnot? And I can think of two specific things. And it comes down to, it's good to be nurturing and we need nurturing, but then like it's bluntness. And I remember when you first decided to take the okie doke um, and I told you, I was like, well, I'm actually revising that. I'm revising that and I'll get you a new draft and it goes to the whole theme we were talking about of like the over workshop and I was really trying to incorporate all the, this feedback and I added like 10 pages and gave backstory and whatnot and I sent it to you and you very simply said like no we're just going to go with the first one <laughs> the first the first one and again it goes down to to honesty and like sometimes you have to honestly I think the polite thing is to just when a writer does an additional draft is to just assume that it's going to be a better draft. Sometimes you just got to be honest and be like, oh, another draft was better. Second thing was when we talk about major dramatic question in the rent manual. So original rent manual was that, um, and I'm going to spoil it for the sake of this point, but she makes rent. 
and she puts the money in the envelope and there's a whole nother scene and whatnot. And then, so your, your suggestion was, well, the question, the major question is, will, will she compromise her morals to make rent? And that question is already answered. Once that question is already answered, then do you need the rest of the story? And I think that was a great edit. Thank you so much, Sadiq. Thank it's you. just been a pleasure having you here. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Suwannee Review Podcast. If you like what you heard, the best way to support the Suwannee Review, America's oldest continuously published literary quarterly, is by purchasing a print and online subscription at www.thesuwanneereview.com. To discover what's happening at the Review, visit our website or follow us on our Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook pages at the Suwannee Review. Until next time, this is the Suwannee Review new since 1892.